Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Talking Impact, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and each week I'm joined by a leading figure from the world of social innovation to discuss their work and a topical issue of the day. Today I'm joined by Sean O'Connell from the United Nations Development Programme in Vietnam to talk about his work on sustainable development and human rights. Welcome to the show, Sean. How are you? Very good, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. I think you're joining us from Dublin today. Is it sunny Dublin or cloudy Dublin? Actually, from the west of Ireland, uh, and it is sunny, thankfully, so um, not too far away. Oh, I've, not, I've never been to the west of Ireland, but I hear it's, it's beautiful. Absolutely stunning, but I'm on my way back to Hanoi tomorrow, so I'm just making, making the most of the fresh air left here in West Clare before I head back. You work for the United Nations um, Development Programme uh, in Vietnam, and, and we're keen to, to talk to you about that today and hear all about your work. But perhaps first, I thought it'd be great for you to tell the listeners just a little bit about your background, you know, um, your studies and how you ended up being work, you know, working for the UN in Vietnam. Um, so I thought, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Sean, please. Okay, I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, so basically, in university, I was uh, studying law, and I was very much on track uh, to pursue a career in commercial law, and uh, my objectives were very much to make as much money as possible and be as successful as possible and wear as many different suits as possible. But I had a bit of an uh, uh, interesting and kind of life-changing experience in my final year in university, offered an opportunity to go volunteering overseas, uh, we went to Nicaragua. I was part of a very well-organized, well-structured volunteering program. Gave me my first um, experience in in the developing world and kind of uh, an exposure in terms of how my background in law might be able to be uh, uh, might be applicable in international development context. And that kind of led me then into human rights. Obviously, law and human rights are closely linked. So then I pursued a um, master's in human rights law from the University of Nottingham. And since then, it's kind of the typical uh, human rights career. Uh, it takes some unpaid internships, some part-time roles, um, some research roles uh, with a variety of organizations, uh, with like Amnesty International, with some think tanks here in Ireland, um, with some government bodies, the Department of Justice in Ireland and the Department of Foreign Affairs, working on human rights and rule of law issues. And then... Um, Kind of more recently looking more at the, the private sector. So I don't think anyone working in international development or human rights can avoid focusing some of their efforts or focus some of their attention on the private sector. It's it's kind of all encompassing and, and touches off almost all aspects of our work. So in the last two to three years with the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland and now with the UN Development uh, United Nations Development Programme in Vietnam, looking at areas such as business and human rights and, of course, uh, social entrepreneurship. And more recently, again, since the adoption of the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, looking at how the private sector can be a force for good in helping us achieve and accelerate uh, the achievement of our social and environmental goals, but also looking at where the private sector, um, at a minimum, shouldn't be interfering with these development efforts and, and can actually adversely uh, affect the enjoyment of human rights so that's kind of a brief snapshot of where we are and that's how I came to meet you. I mean, so yeah so it's a great background a great snapshot to sort of hear about you know how you, how you got there and I'm really interested in this idea of social innovation in the private sector because I suppose listeners to the podcast would normally associate us talking to social entrepreneurs or third sector organisations or even talking about social innovation in a public sector context and actually what this shows is that social innovation even reaches into the private sector doesn't it Sean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so, you know, again, back just the last two or three years, been focusing on 
speaking with the private sector about what really where they shouldn't be hurting uh, human rights or development efforts. But it doesn't take very long in discussing this with, with CEOs or even with uh, managers or even some entrepreneurs that you begin to see that it's not about stopping them from harming. I mean, that is part of it, but it's also about really supporting them to help us achieve our goals. And there's such ambition, there's such capacity, um, experience and 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 um, real ability in the private sector to think up of new ideas and help us achieve social and, de- and environmental development goals. So there's huge potential there and there's actually a huge willingness. Maybe there, in the past, the problem was every time we engaged with them, it was very much either looking for money, you know, in the, in the development context or giving them a smack on the wrist, telling them what they can't do. Whereas now we're kind of trying to work more constructively with them. They're willing to work, I mean, both for market reasons and for kind of uh, social responsibility reasons to, to participate more actively in these development efforts. So, uh, yeah, it's a, I think it's a match made in heaven, to be honest with you. And it's uh, I think both the private sector and like international development actors have gained hugely from, from this experience. But it's still early days. Um, so it's very exciting. I've had conversations with people in the past about this. And I think, um, you know, because of the size of the private sector and because of the, the amount of money and effectively, therefore, power that the private sector wields. If if we could get the private sector to be just ten percent more sustainable in their actions, the impact of that would be absolutely huge compared to you know government-led or certainly third sector-led initiatives. Um, and and I suppose really people often they hear a lot about corporate social responsibility. I mean, it, it does sustainable development fit within CSR, or do you actually see it as a step beyond that for the private sector? I I, I do think it's a step beyond. You know, I I, I mean. So again, back to this kind of, we'll call it the red line below, which they shouldn't fall, and then supporting from them from then on to achieve these wonderful, uh, or to participate in all these wonderful efforts or, or, or projects in international development. CSR is kind of a voluntary set of principles. And what we're saying is the private sector, at a minimum, should never do any of these things. So this is the red line we apply. And these aren't voluntary. These are things that absolutely you can't get involved in. And from then on, you know, it's up to the private sector how much they want to participate uh, and, and contribute. Uh, and um, yeah, we can really go further beyond than the, just the voluntary principles. And as well, I think in the past, they were very closely connected. CSR was closely connected to maybe marketing and uh, positioning yourself somewhere uh, in, or in an ethical market or among ethical consumers. Whereas now with things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, we're actually matching corporate activities to global development to goals and targets so it's not just building a well in certain parts of the world but it's actually tying those activities into global efforts including efforts that are working alongside the government and ngos and i think that's definitely a step away from csr or at least how we understood csr previously so i think maybe the next generation we're looking at at the moment you really nicely segued me there into into the next sort of uh, focus of our discussion, Sean. So thanks for that. Um, I mean, it's about the work of UNDP. I mean, both generally and in Vietnam, and particularly in related in relation to the seventeen uh, SDGs. Um, that's the focus of your work. Could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about UNDP so the listeners can get a feel for for what it is that uh, that that UN agency uh, does, and also specifically about your work in Vietnam as well, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, this is the power. I'm at risk of boring the listeners, but I do it briefly. And um, UN development, the United Nations Development Program is the, the largest of the UN agencies. We're in over 170 different countries worldwide. And um, we do cover quite a, a broad range of issues. So you'll be familiar maybe with other UN agencies, such as UNICEF working on issues to do with children and children's rights, uh, maybe the um, UN women working on gender equality or uh, UNFPA working on family planning issues. Whereas UNDP, we do cross a wide range of issues 
And just to give you an example, in, in the UN, with UNDP in Vietnam, we have three units. Uh, our work is, is um, divided across three units within UNDP. There's the Governance and Participation Unit, uh, which I'm a member of, and we obviously look at issues uh, along the lines of rule of law, human rights, access to information, in, in improving public administration, um, combating corruption, so governance issues. Uh, we also have a unit about inclusive economic growth. That's more about, okay, Vietnam has made huge progress in uh, uh, moving people out of poverty, but are we doing it in an inclusive way? And how, how can we continue economic development, which is undoubtedly going to have a huge impact on people's enjoyment of people's human rights and the protection of the environment, you will you hope. And then obviously the final unit is the climate change and environment unit. And uh, obviously, while all these units are connected and the work is very much towards common objectives, um, the climate change and environment people obviously work more in areas like biodiversity, climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction, and uh, yeah, and a whole range of, of other environmental issues, but working with the government and working with uh, local stakeholders. That's kind of just the briefest way to get to get a feel for it. But effectively what we are is we're almost like a... Uh, almost like a consultancy firm in many ways for the government. The government can look for advice and assistance in international development or for its own development efforts. Uh, we can bring in international expertise, expertise uh, connecting people. We, we really can convene from private sector to government, to civil society NGOs, to stakeholders on the ground. And that's kind of a snapshot of what we do. And that's why actually moving into this area, um, the social entrepreneurship, we find ourselves nicely positioned between very strong ties with the government and very strong ties recently developed with the private sector, who um, obviously recognizing the UNDP is across the across the globe in 170 different countries, see huge um, entry points there. And then we could connect directly to civil society groups, including like consumer groups or, or social entrepreneur uh, groups or, you know, uh, kind of we'll say grassroots movements that we're, we're very closely connected. So we can find ourselves in between them now. And uh, that's what we're, we're, we're looking to foster this social entrepreneurship work in Vietnam. And I think, you know, it, it's obviously very powerful to have the United Nations, the UN brand behind the work that you do, isn't it? And, and to have that global reach. I, I imagine that when you're trying to get buy-in from the private sector, from the government, from, from NGOs, from universities, I know you're doing a lot of work with universities, it, it must be, you know, it must make it a lot easier to have that brand behind you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, reputation goes a long way, of course. Uh, scalability, you know, especially if you're in the private sector and you're thinking about, I want this idea to take off. You know, as I said, we're in 170 different countries. You know, as well, if you're looking for protection or engagement with the government, which is hugely important, um, we can also provide that. So, yeah, the brand is strong. Um, it's 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 dangerous because obviously, when we open ourselves up to working with the private sector, there's always the danger of working with a, a, a private sector partner that can potentially damage their reputation. But it's it's. Uh, it's something we can't avoid, but we're working hard to to mitigate uh, and uh, in, engage in due diligence, but whatnot. But uh, it's it's certainly a great opportunity for them, but there's risks and opportunities for both sides. And you mentioned social entrepreneurship in there as well, and that's a big focus for this podcast and, and the work that we do at the University of Northampton. Um, and I know that you're doing work with National Economics University in Hanoi uh, around social impact measurement and around social entrepreneurship. Um, because I mean, we've we've I've actually been out there and done some work and some sessions with you, Sean. But yes. perhaps you could just tell the, the readers a little bit about why you see social entrepreneurship as important, and perhaps about the the partnership that you have with you uh, with NEU. Of course, yeah. So I mean, we were a little bit late to to the game in in Vietnam in a way. Um, across Southeast Asia, there's been this real focus on uh, building 
um, the startup ecosystem. So, I mean, there's a tremendous, there's a huge population, huge market in Southeast Asia, and there's, there's huge progress made in, 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 in enhancing uh, technology or IT or STEM education. So that's that's happening. That's that's ongoing. And we've seen countries like Malaysia and Thailand and the Philippines or Indonesia take huge steps forward. And Vietnam is definitely catching up there. So for us, it was very simple to look at our own uh, objectives, which was achieving these UN Sustainable Development Goals. That's part of our mandate is to to look at ways, look at new approaches, innovative approaches to achieving the SDGs outside of just your typical overseas aid funded uh, development project. Uh, that we might all be used to. So it kind of made sense to us. You can't avoid the startup scene in Vietnam and you can't avoid the, the, the drive for entrepreneurship. And um, it was a very simple connection for us to make in terms of connecting some of those entrepreneurs and those startups and their ambitions and their real dynamism and pushing them towards social or environmental impact ideas and kind of pulling out some international examples to say, look, at this isn't just something you do to market your company better or to, you know, uh, to sell more of your products or whatnot. There's actually a huge market out there and there's a huge opportunities for you to contribute to social and environmental progress. And people are responding quite strongly to that. And uh, it's it's been successful so far. As I said, we're a little bit, maybe a few steps behind, but uh, we're definitely moving in the right direction. And with the National Economics University in particular, what we're looking to do is looking at the next generation of ideas. We can't just turn around and expect young entrepreneurs to have all the ideas and just support the new ideas. We actually have to build a culture of, of innovation, uh, idea generation, especially building the, the culture of social innovation. So identifying a problem in your community and then developing a market-based solution around that problem uh, to, to solve that problem. So that's what we're doing in the university. We're working a lot with university students to, to develop those things like design thinking, 21st century skills and entrepreneurship. So it's been very exciting and we're, we're delighted to work with the new to the game and it's been great to call on some of your experience and expertise no i mean it's been great to be involved in that um you know in that project and uh you know interesting to deliver the classes uh the sort of workshops with the social entrepreneurs who are actually you know all from very different backgrounds aren't they we have we have students and staff from the universities we actually just have entrepreneurs from the community and it really is all over vietnam and we have people attending from yeah, bear in mind it's in Hanoi from right down in the Mekong Delta and, and Ho Chi Minh City. So uh, there's de- there's definitely a big drive for, for social innovation across Vietnam. And, you know, social entrepreneurship perhaps is coming to the agenda slightly later than we've seen elsewhere. But then, of course, Vietnam, you know, its, it's development journey economically has really only accelerated massively over the last 15 years, hasn't it? It's, it's, really, it's really been a success story in showing how a, a low-income country can start to rise to become a middle-income country. Yeah, absolutely. It really has. And I think the next step for us to, uh, to to take is to identify that in that process, there's been huge, you know, poverty alleviation has been fantastic. But there's there has been some exposure uh, to environmental risks and to other development challenges that, that remain. And um, the previous model may need to be adapted slightly to achieve to, to kind of to, to approach these new problems or these kind of maybe even longstanding problems that they couldn't quite solve in, in the last 15 years. And entrepreneurship definitely provides an answer there. Um, so that's basically what we're trying to do. And just to give your listeners a better idea of what we're talking about is we really are going straight in with young people, uh, taking them through, as I said, some design thinking, 21st century skills training. Uh, you and I both worked with um, some entrepreneurs about how to best measure social impact when you are developing a new business, about mentoring um, social entrepreneurs, 
as well as doing research. Obviously, you know, we, we, we really need more information. It's a big problem in Vietnam. We need more data about what efforts are ongoing out there, um, what supports do they need, uh, what can the government do to help build a better environment for social entrepreneurship in Vietnam, and ultimately how to attract more investment into, into social entrepreneurship, a social impact investment into the region. So that's just kind of more granularly what we're, what we're up to. Let's bring the conversation back to the Sustainable Development Goals then. So there's, there's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and for any listeners that are interested, uh, you can actually find these online. If you just Google them, they'll appear, but you can actually find them at sustainabledevelopment.un.org. There's 17 SDGs, Sean. Um, I won't list them all here, but they, no. they range from you know, no poverty, quality education, reduced inequality, uh, climate action, peace, justice, and strong institutions. You know. So it's, it's a very holistic uh, list of all of the kind of sustainable development needs we would expect to see all over the world, not just in, in, in develop, developing countries. But perhaps you could just tell us about a little bit more about the SDGs and, and why are they important in driving sustainable development globally? Yeah, it's, again, huge challenge. I've, I've been looking at these things for the last three years. How to explain these in an entertaining way has been a huge, <laughs> huge challenge for me. But, but I think, I think, um, I think the, the simplest way to describe this is that in 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 the early nineties, the the uh, UN recognised the UN member states, and it's important to remember when we're talking about the UN, we're not talking about you know UN staffers in New York or Geneva developing these new rules and then foisting them upon the world. These are UN member states came together in the early nineties and basically decided, look, we need some collective goals in our development you can't have one part of the world pushing economic or, or sorry pushing environmental progress and another part not doing it and then you know these efforts are going to undermine each other so we need some collective goals and we, we developed eight previously uh, the millennium development goals they expired in 2015 and and they, they, they were they're quite quite successful in many ways but there was big criticism was that they were focused on the developing world so they were Developing the, the objectives for the developing world only. They did not apply to Western countries or developed countries, uh, as we know. But um, so the new goals after 2015 expired, we said, listen, there were gaps in the last goals. They weren't globally applicable and we weren't very consultative either. They were quite top down in terms of how they're designed. So under um, Ban Ki-moon actually um, helped initiate the process in terms of uh, the consultation, very wide consultation. Across all the regions on the planet, there was a public survey conducted in terms of what issues, what world that people wanted to see by the year 2030, which is the, the new deadline, 2015 to 2030. And we actually engaged very closely and consulted very closely with the private sector, which we hadn't done before. So we actually asked the private sector as well, you know, what, what are you interested in seeing and what are you interested in contributing to in terms of collective development? So as, as a part of all this consultative process, we went back to the UN member states with all this information and they came up with 17 goals and to be honest, they pretty much cover everything. Um, as you mentioned, climate change adaptation, reducing inequality, life below water, life on land, you know, it, it covers everything. But why they're significant is, as I said before, they're applicable to every country. And this is the first time in history that we have a set of global uh, goals um, that are applicable to every country. They are consult and we're, they went through a very consultative process. As far as, we're, as far as we know, the most consultative global process uh, in history, and they engaged a wide range of stakeholders that wasn't done before. You know, we we know the private sector have a huge impact on uh, on uh, the enjoyment of human rights and the environment. So they're very important that we get their uh, their buy-in, and um, that's what we have now. We have 17 goals. We have 169 targets within those goals that let us know, and we have the 230 
two indicators in terms of how we measure if we're progressing in each of those goals. And we have by 2030 to achieve them. And um, yeah, we've had some difficulties in terms of raising awareness. But the, the, the most important thing is that they're, they're a very important uh, framework to connect the very lowest community level project. As I said before, something like building a well, something like cleaning a stream right up to the global level. You find your efforts in these goals and then you can find yourself as part of this wider global effort. You know, for instance, if it is something like uh, goal seven on, on, on renewable energies, then it's, you know, as I said, it, it could be a case of putting a little solar panel on your roof or putting a little wind turbine up on your roof and contributing, finding then within that goal, the target and the indicator, you can find yourself contributing to these global efforts. So it's really bringing it from the very grassroots level right up to the, the top level, the big CEOs, multinational companies, what they're doing and governments. So that's why it's significant, but it's it has been difficult to raise awareness. So thank you for the opportunity to share. No, not at all. I mean, you know, I think any listeners that are interested in looking into it more online can do. And I've certainly, you know, over the last sort of 12 to 18 months of becoming much more aware of the SDGs, seeing real opportunities for how we can use it, you know, in areas like social impact measurement, social innovation and social entrepreneurship. I see a real crossover there. And I know that's something that we've had conversations with um, or about in the past. I suppose from a Vietnamese perspective, um, obviously the focus very much over the last 15 years has been on economic development. How is Vietnam working towards Im- embedding sustainable development into the sort of economic journey and, and how are they doing? I mean, what's your take on progress in Vietnam around sustainable development at the moment? Yeah, it's again, it's 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 kind of early days. So these got adopted, these came into action, or came into force, I should say, in 2016. And the Vietnamese government has responded uh quite well in terms of um, first of all what they've done is they've developed an action plan and they've been able to look at the broken down the goals and they've divided responsibility in terms of the relevant ministries that they want to drive the different goals um, so for example there you have ministries of, of science and technology and industry and trade looking after uh, goal nine on adequate uh, jobs creation and innovation or sorry on innovation i should say and goal nine um so that's that's how that's worked, and that that's only signed since 2017 last year. And Vietnam have gone on then to to prepare a, a voluntary national report for the SDGs, which means that in terms of reporting on these, the actual UN leaves it open to countries to come forward and provide voluntary reports and set examples for other countries. And Vietnam did come forward and said, okay, we'll do it. So in 2018, in July this year, they'll go to New York and they'll they'll prepare a report. It's early days in terms of implementing these 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 um, goals on the ground, and with any country, you're going to find, and this is Vietnam is no different. Across the 17 goals, there will be goals that certain countries are much better at that they traditionally focused more on. So again, Vietnam's efforts at um, reducing poverty and combating hunger, I have no doubt that they will continue to progress in those areas. And there may be other areas that they may need to look at more closely. Um, you know, Vietnam is one of the eighth most exposed countries in the world to climate change. So, you know, there'll be efforts that they can take to increase disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, and also to reduce their uh, uh, impact uh, and, and to, you know, so I should say, participate more in combating and uh, acting on climate change. Um, so it'll, it'll be a mixed bag and time will tell. I would like to pull out any one or two areas. I think one that they really are committed to and maybe are a little bit behind is that area of innovation. And um, they've developed new government plans to 
foster the eco uh, startup ecosystem and also even go down to university level and promote this promote more of this entrepreneurship and we're hopefully going to support them as well in not just promoting entrepreneurship but putting that social angle is in there as well so social entrepreneurship social innovation from as young as high school um so we're very excited about that and i think that's going to it's going to be kind of a catalyst for across across all the goals when you start pushing more of that entrepreneurship and innovation among young people I mean, certainly when I was at last out there a few months ago, um, as part of the UNDP research that we're doing, I actually went and um, had an interview with um, the Central Institute for Economic Ma- Management there. And I actually found it very heartening how engaged they are with ideas around social enterprise, social innovation. Viet- many people won't know, but Vietnam actually introduced its own social enterprise law in 2014, defining you know a legal form for social enterprises, which is something that many... Uh, Western countries have still haven't you know haven't done themselves yet. So there definitely is an appetite, isn't there, out there to explore the role that social enterprise and social innovation can have in driving these SDGs. There is a huge appetite. I do think that. I think I think one thing that they are lacking, and uh, we 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 take some responsibility in this area as well, is the data. You know, we we can have as many meetings as we want with government ministries about how important this is, but we really need to drag the data to them and really connect them to existing social entrepreneurs and what challenges they're facing. We know there's issues with the law. We know there's issues with with the bureaucracy and a lack of strong incentives for social entrepreneurs, even with the law, um, which was, again, itself very progressive. And, and we, we just need to kick on the next step there. But it's why the work of, of, of or the contributions of the University of Northampton and, and UNDP in bringing that data back to the government to help them make really informed decisions and a kind of a clear path towards uh, accelerating social entrepreneurship in Vietnam. That's, that's, our, that's our next challenge. Look, listeners, that's the first part of this podcast over. If you want to check out more about the work of the UN, uh, UNDP, United Nations Development Programme, you can go to www.undp.org. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter or make any comments, we're at, at Institute SII and on LinkedIn at www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. Join us after the break when we'll be talking to Sean about some topical issues from Vietnam around sustainable development. We'll see you shortly. Okay, welcome back listeners. So we promised you in the second half of the show a discussion with Sean about a topical issue of the day to do with Vietnam uh, and that's what we're going to to look at now. So we're going to look at the Formosa steel plant uh, chemical spill in April 2016 and really discuss this with Sean in relation to the sustainable development goals. So just to give you uh, uh, listeners a bit of perspective um, around this, um, in April 2016 $11 $11 billion steel plant run by the Formosa Corporation accidentally spilled toxic waste that polluted more than 200 kilometres of coastline. It devastated sea life and local economies, particularly those dependent on fishing and tourism. Uh, and actually since then, uh, the Formosa has paid out $500 million in compensation. It's now investing uh, $350 million into the local economy. So obviously it's been a very expensive event for them and a very costly event for, for, for Vietnam in terms of social and environmental issues. So that's what I want to talk about, Sean. I thought maybe, um, you know, we could talk about this from an SDG perspective and, and really, you know, does this not give us a great example of why big corporates should actually be embracing the SDGs? Because actually, you know, it's in their long-term interests as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think the SDGs give us a very good framework. Um, you know, uh, and especially, we, this this is equally applicable at the very lower levels or, you know, kind of small and medium-sized enterprises right up to the bigger businesses. Um, it kind of comes back to what we were discussing previously about, 
CSR and, and the previous generation, which, you know, see, we're not to take away. CSR was a very important next step in terms of uh, driving or business or responsible business conduct. But the problem was in that voluntary approach, um, you could really have an external facing uh, view of a company that was doing certain work in certain area. Uh, you know, it was really what it could have been in, in, in building a well or building a school or, you know, providing some providing employees to go volunteer overseas or something like that. And you could really drive that and market that. And that's could be how your company was perceived. But what we're talking about the next generation and trying, trying to uh, kind of integrate the SDGs into the business, it's not just in your voluntary, it's not just in your philanthropic work. Uh, and in your in your marketing, it's about integrating uh, sustainability, both social and environmental, right through your business. Not just in your business model, in terms of uh, you, I don't know, you're producing um, solar panels, or that you're, uh, in, you know, that that's the impact is, is is in your business model, but it's also in your business operations. So how how does your company? Um, deal with waste how does your company uh, employ persons uh, ensure diversity and equality in employment uh, how does your company uh, use energy so those kind of questions and it's about it's a, as you said before it's about that holistic approach and uh, the SDGs give a good framework they give a good uh, framework for companies to look across uh, all their um, their operations and some companies are doing it already last year in Vietnam uh, Vietnam Chambers of Commerce and Industry had their sustainability uh, annual sustainability workshop, and uh, Heineken Vietnam came and, and 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 explained a little bit more about how they were using the SDGs. So especially for for a, a, a company, a drinks company, um, about how they could deal with waste, how they deal with water, how they ensure water, a sustainable use of water, and how they ensure um, that they deal with the waste water effectively and responsibly. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. Again, it's early days. Um, it. it Come depends on which business you're talking about in terms of which SDGs they focus on more. But what we're what we're saying is, and I think what I said to you before is, it's a very important first step. That's what the SDGs are. I think that's all they really are. Some businesses that take their social and environmental responsibility very very seriously go far go into far more detail than what the SDGs provide. But for businesses who are kind of looking at the, the threats and risks out there in terms of reputation or, uh, or or other such risks that are associated with disasters such as the Formosa one, the SDGs are a good starting point, a very good starting point. And again, what we discussed earlier on, they're globally recognized. Uh, so people can instantly recognize whether, you know, a business in Chile or Malawi or in Vietnam, uh, they can understand the framework uh, that's being used. So that's that's, a, that's that's what I would say in terms of uh, how they could be used. I mean, in that sense, does the, do, do the SDGs really... You know, did they act in some ways like a quality assurance framework? I mean, everybody's familiar with things like ISO standards. I mean, obviously not as detailed, but do the SDGs give companies then a global focus on how they can structure their business to align themselves with as many of the SDG goals as possible? Absolutely, and um, you know, within the SDGs, you do have you do have these different frameworks, as in these other international global guidelines, uh, and and. Yeah, as I mentioned to you before, one good way of looking at it uh, is when we're talking about the private sector and we're asking them to integrate the SDGs in in the kind of the text that introduces the SDGs, which is called the Agenda, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Um, that's just kind of like the, it's the, the deeper context of the SDGs, not just the goals, but what we're trying to achieve and, and how we're going to achieve it. It, it states there that, that 
when companies do want to contribute in international development efforts and do want to contribute in efforts to achieve the SDGs, we have minimum expectations of them. And they do cite some uh, guidelines in there that, that companies can be can be guided by in terms of contributing or wanting to participate more in this. One is the, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And most businesses get very afraid when they hear human rights. Um, they want to run a mile, they want to be associated with it. But what it is really is it's a very useful risk management tool for businesses. Businesses do not want to be caught in human rights violations. And in, in many ways, that's what, what the Formosa issue was. And that's what using the UN guiding principles on business and human rights or the SDGs can help mitigate or prevent. So it is it is kind of like a, a, a global standard like that, if you will. But again, it's, it's a first step using the SDGs. Within the SDGs, then you can go into the more detail. You can apply these other maybe in many respects, more focused uh, international standards, such as ISO. And by the way, the ISO 26000 also references the UN guiding principles on uh, uh, business and human rights. But what they do really well, the SDGs, is they give your company uh, that global framework that, as I said before, a small business in, in, in another part of the world, up to a multinational company working across many different countries, uh, the same framework and the same rec instantly recognizable framework because over the next 15 years that's what we're going to try and do promote these as the global standard and, and they are the only globally accepted uh, framework our objectives or goals for, for international development that we have so instantly recognizable and, and easy to work with and that their, their branding is quite good as well i think i'm really interested now you talk you touched upon the idea that you know big corporates you know they want to run a mile when there's talk of human rights mm. um yeah, of course, they would, um, the same as all of us, see the importance of human rights. So why do you, why do you feel that corporations are so so reluctant to engage with issues like human rights? What is it that scares them? Well, actually, what, what's what's happening is, you know, you have industry leaders that are no longer afraid of of of, of the discussing human rights. You have many companies who are conducting human rights practices and are externally communicating their human rights policies, you know, some of the large multinationals. I mean, there's just no doubt that getting caught up in a human rights violation is, is incredibly damaging to your reputation. Um, and it's a, it's a risk management tool for many companies. Now, obviously, regardless of the risk to the business, there is a responsibility on businesses to respect human rights, just by pure virtue of the fact that they have a huge impact on society. Um, they do have a minimum responsibility to respect human rights, and the UN Guiding Principles recognizes that, which is kind of revolutionary because previously, we only analysed human rights uh, in, in, in the context of the state's duty to protect human rights. But over time, we've seen businesses grow and grow and grow. And we now know that businesses, in many respects, have a bigger impact on uh, human rights or on society in general. So we kind of had to rejig and rethink human rights a little bit and say, hey, wait a second. Although the laws and the international human rights framework are developed between states and, 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 and persons and humans, we also have to include um, businesses based on this growing influence. So you know, back to your question, um, they're afraid uh, when they don't, when they realize, or they're afraid when they don't actually engage with the process. Once they engage with it, they see it's quite simple. It's just basically doing a mapping of how your business can impact on human rights and then taking steps to address and mitigate or prevent those uh, potential risks. And, and ultimately what it does is it ensures sustainability for the business. It does protect reputation. And again, it's not to be, you know, you don't have to be afraid of the fact that they can use that to market themselves. People are interested in, in uh, buying uh, goods or uh, services from businesses that respect human rights. So it's it's win-win. And it's just, it's about filtering it down to 
the large multinationals have taken the lead, but making sure everyone else kind of follows suit as well. And we focus very much um, around the role of the private sector and corporations here, but what about in terms of citizens, you know, p- people like our listeners, what, does the, what do the SDGs mean for them and how can they engage with them and use them in, in their everyday life? I think I think you know not not to take it too far away. From, I mean, just first step. We were talking about the private sector, but it is important to start rewarding those types of businesses that are engaging or, or promoting the SDGs. I think that's a very for, important first step. Um, we as consumers are incredibly powerful. Uh, the SDGs give us an opportunity to assess a business in terms of its sustainability and how it contributes to international development. So I would say, as citizens. You know, looking for businesses that, that that are using the SDG language, that are using, um, you know, other other measurements, but just in general, businesses that are taking the effort or making the effort to ensure sustainability in their practice and in their business model and operations. That's that's an important first step. Um, other ways, I mean, look, it's it's you know these these would even with businesses at the end of the day, businesses do normally respond to regulations set by government. So the SDGs, again, it's an opportunity for you to lobby and advocate for your government to use this as a framework. Um, I think sometimes there's a, there's a, there's, it really is flexible in terms of what how a government can approach its international development efforts. And it can kind of, between different um, elections and different parties coming in and out of office, uh, the priorities change all the time. You know, we have a 15-year window here where we can really focus in on some of these issues that are re- that are applicable across the world you know there is no country where there isn't issues to do with climate change or in- ensuring renewable energy sources or uh, ensuring gender equality so you know this is it, it helps focus your goals and this is something that you can use to advocate for your government for to to push them to use this as a framework and not just have a set of uh goals that that come and go in an election cycle and uh, that help focus the government and uh, one way of doing that, obviously, is to include it in education. And I can't think of many other, I can't think of any, because the goals covers everything, you know, from business, uh, for all types of uh, education that we're, talk- we're, we're working on. You know, if you're a lecturer or a teacher looking at introducing the SDGs or whatever re- relevant SDGs to your work. So, for instance, you know, you're looking at doing this now, which is fantastic. But, uh, you know, other business schools can start looking at using them, Um IT, um, engineering, um, healthcare, there's uh, even teachers that in tre- teacher training themselves, start using these um, to create awareness among younger people and then they can start rolling these out and, and integrating them into their own work. It's great to have um, heard your view, Sean, and I think we've crossed a really, really broad sort of arc there from you know, sustainable development, human rights, the role of the private sector, um, roles of social entrepreneurs all of universities i mean really a really great conversation so um thank you so much for for joining us on the show today and uh, and good luck with all of the work that you're doing and that the undp is doing uh, around the world as well thank you very much just before you leave i just want to have one brief brief mention for kind of what we're doing in vietnam and i just think it's it's useful it's useful template for the country so this year we really are you know, about building that culture of innovation uh, and entrepreneurship. And, you know, across all the things we spoke about today, we definitely need new ideas and new solutions, whether they be human rights ones, environmental ones, or, or whatever. We, we, I don't think everything we have, I, I, I don't think we'll be able to meet these challenges with the existing practices or approaches or previous ones that we've used. We definitely need some, some new ideas, including ideas that can really um, adapt technologies or adopt technologies to help us achieve these goals 
So I think it's great if you, if you can provide some space in whatever teaching or whatever, uh, even in business yourselves, give some space for innovation, give some space an opportunity, space to fail, I suppose it's called in many, in many different areas, um, just so that people can try things out and, and, and try to connect this innovation, not just with making money, but with some of these uh, global environmental and, and social uh, goals. Uh, and if you think there's too complicated sometimes to focus in on one area, use the SDGs. There's just 17 goals there. Um, they're broken down quite neatly and uh, a very important starting point for connecting maybe someone who has some creativity or has some ambition to some of these bigger social and environmental challenges we face. And who knows what after that, what can happen? So that's just uh, what we're doing this year in Vietnam, working with young people to give that space. And hopefully in the next two to three years, we can see some of these ideas mature and, uh, and grow. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm, I completely agree. And I think it's something that certainly uh, the University of Northampton is really keen on providing that sort of space for innovation. Um, obviously, perhaps just before you go, Sean, we could um, also give a shout out to the listeners on how they could engage with some of the work that UNDP is doing. So, uh, UNDP has Twitter accounts, I, I believe, at, at UNDP. They can follow the work there. Yes, Twitter accounts and Facebook. I mean, you know, obviously our work, UNDP Vietnam, but any, any Google search for the United Nations Development Programme, you, you can get our, our global website and find out all these different activities uh, that we're engaged in. Uh, we've got exciting opportunities to volunteer with the UN. You can you can be uh, an online volunteer. We use the UNV, the United Nations Volunteering Online Service, where we often get pieces of research or translation or or some drafting done by volunteers from across the world who are interested in volunteering for the UN. So that's one way of getting directly involved. And yeah, just sharing some of the information. I mean, a lot of people think the SDGs are too lofty and that they're too high level, but ultimately it's kind of our responsibility to see how much of a success we're going to make of them. The better we can do in creating awareness, actually integrating them into whatever work we're doing, using them uh, uh, and checking even just your first step, no guarantees of what's going to happen after that. That's going to give the SDGs the greatest chances of success. And uh, so that's just an important first step that people might want to, to look into. Absolutely. If you don't aim high, then you won't achieve high, I suppose, is the, uh, is the motto there. Um, Sean O'Connell from UNDP, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing us with us the, the great work that you're doing out in Vietnam and globally. Thank you very much, Richard. And uh, looking forward to seeing you back in Hanoi sometime soon. Please, as ever, engage with us on social media. If you have any comments or questions about the podcast today or any other topics that we've discussed on previous podcasts, you can contact us on Twitter at, at Institute SII and also on LinkedIn at www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. Please join us for our next episode of Talking Impacts. We'll be talking to another leading social entrepreneur. In the meantime, take care. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Talking Impact podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact. If you have any questions about the content discussed in this podcast, please email isii at northampton.ac.uk. For more information on the Institute's work, visit northampton.ac.uk forward slash research. You've been listening to a Jump Media Group production. Talk to us at wejumphigher.co.uk.